Hello everyone, welcome to Ideas and Insights. I am Badri Nath Rao, your host for this program. A distressing trend of our times that has engaged the attention of academics and the general public alike is the eclipse of democracy across the globe. Democratic regimes all over are in different degrees of disrepair. In some countries, despotism has trounced democracy. In others, democracy cohabits uneasily with strains of authoritarianism. Despots, dictators, demagogues, and tyrants torment their people in countries such as Russia, Poland, Belarus, Kenya, Hungary, the Philippines, Turkey, and El Salvador. Discerning observers have identified several ominous developments that have eviscerated the ethos of democracy. Of these, four are particularly disconcerting because they have corroded our cherished values, norms, and institutions. First, no country is immune to being overrun by autocrats, a fact vividly brought home by the attempted coup d'etat on January 6, 2020 in Washington, D.C. The democratic form of government is, thus, under attack even in nations hitherto deemed to be solid exemplars of popular rule, such as the United States, Britain, and India. Neo-authoritarian regimes, cloaked in the legitimacy of elections, have repeatedly outraged democratic protocols, time-tested rules, and institutional restraints. Second, the world over, citizens are estranged from their governments, do not trust their rulers, and have grave misgivings about their future. Thus, according to a Pew Center poll, the proportion of Americans reporting trust in government institutions is down from a top of about 70% in the late 1950s to less than 20% in 2015. Third, record levels of inequality and the dominance of moneyed interests have diminished civic efficacy, accentuated social discord, led to institutional decay, and fostered an impotent rage against a system ranged against its own people. Upward social mobility is a receding dream for millions trapped in precarious lives of despair. Together, these circumstances have engendered an unavailing sense of ennui that manifests in absurd obsessions such as hyperconsumerism and the endless pursuit of hedonism. Fourth, repelled by the dysfunctional effeteness of democratic governance, many see virtue in the putative efficiency of authoritarian regimes. Citing China as an example, they argue that democratic deficit notwithstanding, dictatorial governments deliver results. Exulting in its so-called performative legitimacy, China pans West, Western-style democracy 
and touts its system as a viable alternative. The incipient admiration for strong governments led by efficient leaders masquerades a latent affinity for neo-authoritarianism that is as troubling as it is portentous. Several scholars have examined the tribulations of democracy and offered strategies for its invigoration. In 2018, Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Zyblatt published How Democracies Die, an influential book that analyzes the incremental phases of democratic attrition, underscoring the vital role of democratic norms, mutual tolerance, and institutional forbearance its authors argued that democracies die when it lacks gatekeepers for their protection. Professor Stein Ringen's How Democracies Live, Power, Statecraft, and Freedom in Modern Societies, published by the University of Chicago Press this year, is a seminal addition to this literature. Professor Ringen is Emeritus Professor of Sociology and Social Policy at the University of Oxford and Emeritus Fellow of Green Templeton College. He's also been an associate of Nuffield and St. Anthony's Colleges in Oxford. An astute political scientist, Professor Ringen has spent decades studying and writing about states, governance, and democracy on more than 70 occasions in the 20th century. Democracy collapsed and gave rise to authoritarianism. How democracies live delves into the recent vicissitudes of democracy and reminds us that it is constantly under threat and will fail unless we care for it. This book offers a sophisticated account of why the global advance of democracy has stalled since the end of the 20th century and how we can reinstate it to its preeminent position. An ardent Democrat, Professor Ringen posits an urgent need to salvage democracy and strengthen its foundations. Going beyond current scholarship, appearing in various guises such as direct democracy, deliberative democracy, and monetary democracy, Professor Ringen identifies three C's, culture, conversation, and contract as the pillars of democracy. Rejecting the notion of widespread disenchantment with democracy, he attributes the beclouding of democracy to factors such as the crumbling of confidence in governments, this socio-economic and cultural polarization of the people, and a revolt from below. A highlight of Professor Ringen's work is that it pinpoints the theoretical gaps in our understanding of crucial concepts related to democratic functioning, such as power, freedom, statecraft, and democratic culture. Engaging with classical and contemporary works on these issues, he offers novel interpretations of the factors mediating popular rule. For instance, freedom, he points out, is the supreme guiding principle that gives meaning to democracy. However, 
It does not mean merely doing what one likes. Instead, Professor Ringen's exegesis, based on his masterful survey of the academic discourse on this topic, accentuates the need to revive the Aristotelian idea of freedom as access to human dignity. Similarly, noting that political equality cannot be maintained in a context of pervasive economic inequality, he urges the use of state power to eradicate poverty and revitalize the welfare state. Two elements set Professor Zingen's work apart from dozens of books on this topic. First, he provides a perceptive account of the intricacies of democratic praxis in places like the United States, Britain, and other parts of Europe and Asia. Second, wedded to a pragmatic orientation, he offers several recommendations for fortifying democracy. Prominent among them are electoral reforms based on proportional representation, breaking up of media monopolies, strengthening local governance, and, the st and state funding of election expenses. Convinced that we are at a critical juncture in determining the future of democracy, Professor Ringen urges the general public to think about what we now have and what we will lose if democracy is imperiled. Flawed though it may be, he believes that democracy has given us freedom, rights, autonomy, effective governance, and the rule of law. Above all, it has taught us to embrace imperfection, practice tolerance, and accept disagreements. Professor Ringen joins me now to discuss these ideas. Welcome to Ideas and Insights, Professor Ringen. Thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you very much. I am glad you were able to join us after several mishaps. Let's begin with the first thing you start in your book, namely how governments across the world manage COVID-19. The management of the pandemic illustrated very vividly the strengths and shortcomings of various governments. And you rightly point out that the best management of COVID-19 came from New Zealand, and the worst performance was found in Brazil. Now, both countries are democracies. So we have good democracies and bad democracies. The question then is, how serious is the eclipse of democracy across the globe? Could you tell us about that, please? Well, it's serious. Uh -huh. um, we have, um, uh, in the second half of the 20th century, enormous uh, thrusts forward for democracy. Democracy spread across the world, um, and it was uh, perceived as the only game in town. Even autocrats had to speak democratic language. Now, recently, that has stalled. And um, there are uh, troubles in the democratic systems that go back to many origins. 
But I think the chief origin is an explosion of inequality that we have not been able to share better standards of living in any fair way. And that there are swathes of uh, people in even rich countries who are excluded from the progress of economic growth. So this explosion of inequality is at the very heart of the troubles that many democracies uh, are experiencing. I should still add that although I'm very aware of these troubles and write about them, my book is a very positive book about democracy. Um, I wish to counter some of the negative. There's so much negative out there. Democracies are dying, all politicians are crooks, citizens are, um, are not serious and so on. I don't believe any of this. And I think we need to understand, of course, and we, we including we political scientists, we social scientists, we need to speak in positive terms about democracy to encourage understanding and to encourage belief. Let me follow up on the idea that you raised just now, namely that the uh, notion that people are disenchanted with democracy is overblown and is actually not true. And you say as much in your book. Now, if we concede your point, how strong do you think is the support for democracy across the globe? And what gives you the confidence to believe that people still repose their faith in democracy? Well, the experience is that anywhere where people are given the choice, mm -hmm. they choose democracy if they can. Uh, and the experience is that autocratic regimes, how much they uh, praise their own uh, uh, virtues, yeah. cannot prevail without repressing their people. So there is a there is a, a constant, obvious demand for democracy, but that demand needs to be underpinned by democratic regimes performing effectively. And they need to do more than they are doing in spreading fairness in their economies and in their societies. Um, you know, if we go back to the second half of the, of the 20th century, it was just a, a, a wonder of progress. We, that is the democratic West, we built uh, the whole United Nations system of global government. It's an absolutely marvelous construct. Domestically, we built welfare states that in many ways enabled most people to share in progress. And that this was just a period of great confidence and great progress and great reform. This has stalled and it has stalled in very large measure because we ourselves do not well understand uh, the blessings that democracy brings to us, the blessings of freedom, rule of law, autonomy, dignity, and so on. And I have very much wanted to speak in favor and speak positively 
about what a wondrous invention this thing, democracy, is. We will come to the issues that you raise, uh, Professor Ringen, issues such as the benefits that the welfare state has confer conferred on us and uh, the exemplary character of uh, democratic institutions and so on. But let me backtrack a bit and start with a point that you make early in the book. While discussing the ills of democracy, particularly in the context of the United States and Britain, you talk about the American predicament and the British delusion. Can you tell us more about this? What do you mean by these terms? Well, the American predicament is that in the United States, four developments have come together at the same time. One is the explosion of inequality that I mentioned, extreme in the case of America. Uh, the second is the a new organization of moneyed interests, that private money is used as a political resource in a massively organized fashion. And the third is a lack of confidence in government institutions, understandably when we see what has happened to distribution. And the fourth is a polarization in the population, that people do not trust each other and that the different political camps look upon each other as enemies mm -hmm. rather than as uh, legitimate competitors. And these four things have come together uh, over the last 20 years, 30 years maybe, to really undermine the democratic culture of the United States. And that is greatly damaging and greatly unfortunate. All these things can be remedied, but that requires a will and an understanding, which for the time being is not there. And what about the British uh, delusion? Well, the British, I call it the English delusion, actually, Sorry. the English delusion. Um, that is the idea that what makes for effective government is a strong government. Mm -hmm. So therefore, we have this idea in Britain that our elections must be by first past the post so that even small majorities, well, even minorities in the electorate results in majority governments. And we have the idea that uh, once there has been elections, it is governments and not parliament that must be in charge. Hence, the British Parliament, the House of Commons in particular, is not in charge of itself. It's not in charge of its agenda. It is a servant of the government. All this goes back to an idea that governments need to have that strength if they are going to be able to deliver. That turns out to be a bit of an illusion. We can see that in the British system. It doesn't function well. We are just rolling from one scandal and crisis to the other in this country. And there isn't a balance of power between the executive and the legislature. And our elected representatives have 
much too little say over their own business and over government business. Precisely for the reasons that you mentioned about the aberrations of uh, democracy in America and in Britain, a growing number of people are beginning to veer toward this idea that state capitalist authoritarianism in China and neo-authoritarianism in Russia is after all perhaps not all that bad because these governments unlike the uh, governments in Britain and America they tend to deliver. We see in Washington a log jam that refuses to go away there's a stalemate and we find something analogous in Britain. So a lot of people are beginning to say, you know what, it does not matter if we do not have democratic freedoms like freedom of speech, freedom of expression, and so on. What we want is development. What we want is efficiency. And that's what China delivers. And we must therefore seriously consider what they are getting right. You completely reject this idea. Can you tell us why? Well, I have studied uh, the Chinese system very carefully. Sure you have. Um, and that is not a particularly effective system. Um, uh, they use vast resources. They invest a lot. Uh, but their systems are, are not as effective as they themselves praise them for being. Um, the World Bank has a very careful index of government effectiveness. Mm -hmm. And China is not high on that index. It's in the middle of the range right. with countries like Mexico and India and so on. So, um, uh, and even in economic terms, the Chinese story is no more than a typical East Asian story. The same economic story as previously in Japan, Taiwan, and South Korea. Right. So China is very big and powerful and has a lot of clout, but it doesn't have the effectiveness that itself praises itself of having. And then it comes with the awful costs of repression, which is harder and harder by the day. Um, in Hong Kong, domestically in the repression of uh, legal freedoms and legal practice, and of course, in outright police state tyranny in the Western regions. So it's actually a, an ugly system which does not have the virtues that the leaders obviously praise it for having. You mentioned also Russia, and we have now seen what authoritarianism in Russia means. Now, it means war. One of the merits of democracy is that democratic governments are peaceful. They are not inclined to war, at least not between themselves. So democratic regimes would promise better prospects for peace in the world. Autocratic regimes, and we now see it, are dangerous in war terms. You make a fervent plea in your book, Professor Ringen, 
for reforming democracy. And you lay out your arguments by first considering and rejecting the solutions that have been proposed. Participatory democracy, direct democracy, for example, deliberative democracy, monetary democracy, and so on. And you faulted them for their uh, less than solid engagement with issues of power, freedom, and so on. You are also opposed to the idea of reinventing democracy. Instead, you set much store by this notion that we can reform democracy. Why would you not be in favor of reinventing democracy? Well, because the, the system of electing representatives mm -hmm. and having these representatives govern through decision-making in carefully orchestrated assemblies has just enormous advantages. It's, it's safe, it's easy, it asks very little of citizens. Um, we are likely in that mode of decision-making to get uh, well-considered and well-tested policies. Um, there is a, a tradition in democratic thinking that goes back to Aristotle, my, one of my heroes in this mm -hmm. book, that democracy is very good, but citizens are also um, a danger. And mass um, activity is particularly dangerous. So we need to find a very good balance between what citizens should do and what our representatives should do. Mm -hmm. And I think the experience is that if representative democracy works well, if the, our, our, our congresses and parliaments have good tools and good rules and good ways of working, mm -hmm. we, get, we are more likely to get good government. Uh, and, uh, inviting citizens directly into the making of policy is, it's regrettably democratic thinking, but it is unfortunate, it is dangerous. We have seen that in these days here in Britain, mm -hmm. where a new leader of the Conservative Party was elected by party members, and it was a catastrophe. <laughs> Had that decision been left to members of parliament, we would have avoided catastrophes that we have suffered the last couple of weeks in this country. Those members of parliament were much better in identifying who might be their best leader than the representatives out there, the, 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 the members of the party out there in the country. So we've just had a test of this form of participation in this country, and it has been a catastrophe. Let's now turn to your discussion of theoretical issues, and I begin with your wonderful exegesis on the question of power. You have examined notions of power articulated by scholars starting from Max Weber to James Coleman to uh, 
people like Joseph Nye, Robert Dahl, and so on. And you find that their concept of power is somewhat brittle and oftentimes lacking. And you provide your own expanded account of power, which includes social relationships. And you point out that it is mediated by a host of factors, such as skills, rules, influence, uh, legitimacy, authority, and so on. My question to you is, what is the significance of your expanded notion of power, and how might it be used for reviving democracies? Another one of my heroes is Max Weber, and he uh -huh. said of power sure. that it is the probability that some, someone can get something done. And I say, although I, I admire Max Weber more than almost anyone else, I say that cannot be right. Power cannot be a probability. It must be what makes for a probability. Mm -hmm. And if so, Power is prior, it is separate from the probability, or as other theoreticians have said, from capacity or ability. Power is prior. The consequence of that is that what matters is not power itself, but the use of power and the way power is used. And that brings us to the competence and the skills of political leaders. It is absolutely essential that we have political leaders that are capable of managing the vast powers that they are entrusted with in modern governments. So uh, leadership capacity, leadership ability, mm -hmm. leadership skill is essential. Therefore, it is also essential to think of the ways we get leaders, the ways we proceed through elections and through nominations to get leaders and to get the good leaders. And I have some things, as you would have seen, to say about the way we go about recruiting leaders. Right. Now, how is this uh, expanded notion going to help us as we try to revive democracies? In other words, what are the concrete consequences that one might, uh, one might draw from this? Well, again, it, it tells us that we need to pay very close attention to the quality of leadership and to uh -huh. the quality of leaders. Very close attention to it. And we must find mechanisms that are helpful in excluding unqualified leaders from getting into position of authority. Now, you have seen that obviously in the United States in the case of, of Mr. Trump. Mm -hmm. there should, <laughs> it should not be possible in a democracy for a person like that to come into leadership position. Now, this is difficult because we political scientists, we know a lot about free and fair elections but we know very little about free and fair nominations. Mm -hmm. And the battleground in the United States now, you will see that, is very much at the stage of nominations. 
The question is who gets nominated? And once that is done, then we citizens come in and elect. But before that, uh, there's been a selection of those who get nominated, those we citizens can choose from. And nominations are a weak point in both democratic thinking and democratic practice. Now, I don't know exactly what to do with that, but I do have one recommendation which you would have seen. That's true. And that is that we should institute a routine uh, of uh, testing uh, for uh, um, uh, qualified leadership. Right. Um, and my recommendation is that those who want to stand for office, at least high office, should have to declare formally to the election authority um, that they um, uh, do not have criminal convictions, um, that they have not been engaged in serious bankruptcies, that they have not been fraudulent on taxation. Right. And they should declare <laughs> willingness to provide documentation of those matters if necessary. Now, that, that's not a very far-reaching recommendation, and it doesn't do all that much to, uh, to, to, to come to grips with the problem of nominations, but it is something. And I think this fit and, and proper person test mm -hmm. is something we should have in politics. There's a lot of it in business and in organizational life, in sports, for example. Right. Um, and there is no reason why we shouldn't say ahead of time that anyone who puts himself or herself forward for a position of leadership must pass a fit and proper person test. So that we can, at least in that way, clear away people who are not fit to govern because of dishonesty or, or fraudulence. Let's now turn to the question of statecraft. You have discussed at length the role of statecraft in building democracies, and you have highlighted the fact that an elementary condition of a good government is that it is an efficient government. Having said that, you go on to describe how government works and what challenge it, the challenges it faces. And you say that governments routinely pass orders and do no more. And therefore, there is this question, vexatious question of implementation. And when you get to that, you have two challenges. One is bureaucratic inertia. Number two, getting people to obey uh, the orders and persuading people to abide by the law. Then, of course, you have the uh, question of reigning in activist courts. All of these things together make what you call creating a culture of trust and we feeling quite challenging. In fact, you go to the point of saying that it's a very messy business. Now, how did we get here and how can we get out of this situation? Well, again, um, the whole matter of statecraft is very much about competence uh -huh. and good leadership. Uh, again, power does not do anything. It is the use of power that matters. So it is the competence and the skills of those people who hold power 
that is that is uh, essential. And they have to, they simply have to use that power to deliver some reasonable degree of fairness in a democratic society. You know, democracy is premised on the idea that everyone counts. And if everyone counts, there must be some reasonable measure of fairness. Um, and it is necessary then that, that, uh, that leaders use their skills and the power they hold mm -hmm. to govern in a way which citizens see to be reasonably fair. Um, I, I'm not romantic about fairness. There will not be perfect fairness, mm -hmm. but there cannot be the degrees of inequality that are now prevalent in advanced capitalist democracies, such as in, in the United States and in Britain. So they need to come to grips with the problem of inequality and take that very seriously. Let's now turn to your analysis of freedom. Again, you offer an original account of this notion of freedom, starting with Aristotle, whom you admire a great deal, going on to Adam Smith and uh, Prof uh, uh, Sir Isaiah Berlin and uh, Raymond Boudon, and uh, you go all the way to Liu Xiaobo. And you point out that uh, we must move away from this notion that uh, freedom is just doing what one likes. You also have uh, concerns with uh, Sir Isaiah Berlin's uh, notion of positive and negative freedom, that freedom as the absence of coercion and so on. You say that freedom must be understood in the Aristotelian sense of providing access to dignity. And in order for this to happen, you posit that deliberation is a necessary condition of freedom. And when we deliberate, and you invoke, of course, uh, uh, the uh, European scholars to make your point. Uh, Habermas, for example, is theory of communicative action. My point to you, sir, is, Again, this expanded notion of freedom is very well taken. But can you please tell us, A, how it differs from the usually understood notions and what we could do with the idea you are proposing for reviving democracy? Well, my notion of freedom goes to the choice of both purpose and method. Right. It's not just about running around and making choice, but it is about being in control of the purpose for which we make choice. Mm -hmm. We must be in control of purpose. Now, that's difficult. And my answer to that is that it relies on deli deliberation. We need to uh, uh, talk to others about what it is that gives meaning. We cannot trust only ourselves. We must talk to others and with others constantly. Now, the practical meaning, I think, of this is that it's not enough to run around and demand rights. Rights are very important. And mm -hmm. you would have seen that I, I go on about rights all the time. But, but these flip side to rights are duties. And there cannot be a civilized social order unless we as citizens 
not only demand rights, but also accept duties. Correct. And there is much too much insistence on rights and much too little acceptance of duties in current discourse. We social scientists have much to answer for in this <laughs> respect. We are so individualistic, so uh, 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 concerned about rationality in a narrow understanding, so prone to emphasizing rights, and so cautious, reluctant to talk about duties and obedience. Mm -hmm. And I want a much more balanced attitude to the dialectic between rights and duties about uh, claiming rights and accepting obedience. I've written a whole book about obedience, and obedience is very important. Yes, indeed. So I think the the long and the short of this discussion is that we citizens need to ask a lot of ourselves. It's mm -hmm. not enough mm -hmm. that we ask things of our politicians and our representatives. We must ask things of ourselves and we must participate uh, in, uh, in, in, in the way that we, uh, we engage and we obey and we understand that everything cannot be rights but there must also be duties and there must also be mm -hmm. obedience. Let's now turn to your analysis of the role of poverty in uh, hurting democracy. And you obviously uh, advocate the complete eradication of poverty. You have identified uh, abundance and redistribution as the two preconditions for carrying out this agenda, you have come up with six very concrete suggestions for uh, getting rid of poverty. However, you also say that the biggest challenge in this task of stamping out poverty is not want of resources, but lack of political will. My question to you, sir, is that is an almost insuperable challenge. And we've been grappling with it for a very long time. We all know that there are entrenched interests made stronger by neoliberal uh, globalization. And some might therefore say that scaling back poverty, forget about eradicating, well, that itself is going to be quite challenging because there is no political will to carry out this agenda. What do you say to that? Well, there has been political will. It has not been impossible to mobilize the will. Um, the, the, the monumental welfare state reforms that followed after the Second World War mm -hmm. um, uh, did wonders for reducing and cutting back poverty. Uh, not only trusting in economic growth, but also accepting the importance of sharing. Mm -hmm. And there was that will. Now, this again brings me back to the acceptance of runaway inequality. We cannot accept this inequality, that in rich countries, there are swathes of the population that are excluded from taking part in uh, progress and advancement. That will has been there, 
previously, and it can be mobilized again. Um, uh, it is as so much uh, in this book, a matter of argument and of trying to make it understandable right. and acceptable, and that we engage in conversation with each other about these basic matters. Indeed, you uh, are right in that we have made a lot of progress uh, since World War II, since the advent of the welfare state. You also uh, referred to the, millennial the Millennium Development Goals uh, embraced by the United Nations in 2000. One of the goals was to uh, eliminate extreme poverty and you do note that as early as 2008, that goal was more or less reached. Well, all that is very well taken, sir. But as you have acknowledged in your book, and as you mentioned just now, inequality is growing and growing at an alarming rate, number one. And number two, poverty appears to be an intractable problem. Now, for this, you say that one has to build a consensus about the importance of getting rid of poverty. And you, again, come back to the question of deliberation. You say, through deliberation, we can forge a consensus. And that way, we can eliminate poverty. At a time when there is extraordinary levels of polarization, in the United States, for example, I'm sure you will agree, there are literally two Americas, and they don't meet. There is the America that the rich inhabit, and then there is the other America that the vast majority of the poor uh, live in, and they seldom meet. So given this polarization, how uh, viable is this idea that we can forge a consensus through deliberation? Well, it's a big question. <laughs> in, in the American case, part of my answer to this is that um, the origins of polarization have not been taken seriously, mm -hmm. seriously enough. I mean, the people who are, there is, I've, I say in the book that, that there is, it's not just dissatisfaction, there is revolt certainly in the United States, elsewhere. There is revolt, grassroots revolt. It's, it's not dissimilar from the peasants' revolts in Europe in the, <laughs> in the Middle Ages. There is revolt. And that revolt is not sufficiently listened to. Right. We, political scientists, we pretty much brush it aside and call it populism. We will not talk about it. And these people who are in revolt, and they are in righteous revolt, they have right. good reasons to be in revolt. They are not listened to. They are brushed aside mm -hmm. uh, by intellectual participants in the established order uh, who will not take up their challenge, who will not listen. Um, in, the, in the American case, I have no traction at all with a would-be autocrat like Donald Trump, but I do not dismiss in any way those people who voted for him. Mm -hmm. They have every reason to be in revolt 
right. against the system that has excluded them. Uh, to the degree, we see it in America, we see it in Britain, that you know, our, our, our systems are rotten with corruption. Political influences bought and sold before our eyes. Now they are right to be in revolt against this and they need to be listened to. Um, they aren't, they are dismissed, they are populists. So again, uh, much comes back to a proper understanding. And in this case, an understanding that those who are nasty out there, I don't mean those who storm Congress, obviously, but the ordinary Americans mm -hmm. through the heartlands who are angry at what they see in Washington, they have every reason to be angry and they should be listened to. Let me ask you one last question on the question of equality before we move on. Uh, you have again and again talked about inequality and even in the course of this interview, you've raised this question a number of times. In fact, you end your book by making a fervent plea to uh, address inequality. However, I was somewhat intrigued by something I saw in your book. I noticed that there are just two fleeting references to Dr. Amartya Sen and his human capabilities approach. And I invoke him because you know that there has been a rich debate between John Rawls and Professor Sen on how we should conceptualize inequality. Now, the way, of, way to address inequality, Dr. Sen said, is not just to divvy up resources, the more appropriate strategy is to foster human capabilities. And only when people have the ability to pursue goals that they value or have reasons to value, that they will be capability rich and will be genuinely empowered. Now, I'm trying to suggest, sir, that the fostering of human capabilities is a very significant thing. And I say this also because I'm originally from India, and I noticed this in India, where more than three-fourths of the population is capability poor. I wonder why this dimension of the inequality debate doesn't find much mention in your book. I was just intrigued. Well, I think that um, it is not because of disagreement, but it is because of priority. Uh -huh. Now, as things are now in the advanced democracy, capitalist democracies, uh, the, the distribution of income is so perverse that we need, we need to really get to grip with this this awful predicament that, you know, there are a tiny group of the population that run away with almost all the surplus and the masses of the population are left with no progress. And I think that, that, that is a priority issue. And we have the 
excellent instruments of the welfare state, tried and tested, that can eliminate the ugly end of that inequality in the form of poverty. We have the instruments. Uh, we can do it. We have pretty much done it before. I am, as you know, a Scandinavian. The Scandinavians have produced, at one and the same time, the most efficient economies sure. in the capitalist world and the fairest economies in the capitalist world. And this is possible. And I think this is such a priority issue now with the degree of, again, runaway inequality that I wish to, 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 to give priority to that in the discussion. Professor Ringen, we are, are running out of time. We have very little time, but I have several questions to ask of you. Uh, so if we can uh, go through the questions very quickly. Let me begin by asking you about your, uh, uh, your uh, support for and advocacy of the right to vote for children. You're a great votary of the right to vote for children. Now, there are two concerns that uh, uh, opponents might have. One, obviously, is that children are immature. They do not have the capacity to decide on what they should do with their vote. Now, you suggest that the mother should be the proxy. And some might say that she will end up getting two votes, uh, hers and her child's. Then the other question is, in a context marked by uh, uh, you know, a two-party system, both in Britain and, and the United States, how much choice do we have uh, with respect to furthering this agenda of child rights? Quickly, if you can please respond to this. Well, as you rightly say, I think voting power should be put behind the interests of children. Uh -huh. And I think it's a question of vast consequence. Um, you know, in, again, in rich countries, swathes of children live in poverty. It's not acceptable. Right. Uh, there are two categories in the population who are dependent on um, sharing from others, and that is the elderly, the retired population, and it is children. Mm -hmm. For the retired population, we have vast systems to ensure that they have a decent standard of living. For children, in most um, uh, of the capitalist countries, we have nothing similar. We do not have a welfare state for children. So it's a, it's a question of, of huge consequence of lifting children out, many children out of the predicament of poverty that they grow up in. Let me uh, conclude by asking you two quick questions. The first one concerns your recommendations for reviving democracy. Now, you have rightly noted the limits that a state has to reckon with while imposing taxes, particularly at a time when capital is mobile. Uh, capitalists will go elsewhere to a, a region where low taxes prevail, and so there is a limit. But then you go on to say that citizens must be <laughs> encouraged to voluntarily uh, contribute in a context marked by trust deficit, democracy deficit, and so on, and polarization, how fair is it to expect that people will willingly contribute? I was just intrigued by this. 
Well, people massively contribute willingly to charitable causes. Well, they do. But I have one other quick question, sir. I see again that you don't mention a word about tax havens. There are about 70 of them, and annually we lose something like $427 billion in foregone revenues. Why not go after people who park their money illicitly elsewhere? And I don't mention, you don't mention that at all. Obviously we should do that. But I think it's such a beautiful idea to think of finding ways in which people can uh, contribute voluntarily to public causes. Uh, it's really, this is really participatory democracy in practice, mm -hmm. that people engage, including with some of their money, including with labor, in uh, promoting good causes, and that they are encouraged and rewarded for so doing. It's a beautiful idea, and it's much better to have people contribute voluntarily than to force them. Let me conclude by asking you a million dollar question. You have a series of absolutely wonderful recommendations for reviving democracy. They are apposite, they are relevant, and they are timely. The question, however, is how do we go about implementing them given the massive forces ranged against these recommendations? What are your thoughts on this? Well, I'm not sure that is right. I mean, survey evidence in the United States, for example, suggests that you know, majorities of American citizens wish their constitution to be reformed, to be changed. Now, for different reasons, uh -huh. but, but there is, a, there, there, there is a, a, a wide agreement in the American public that the constitution is ripe for reform. Correct. So into that agreement, I think it is meaningful to throw ideas, as I have been trying to do. Now, I don't know how how fruitful these ideas are, or what their chances for survival are. But I think it is meaningful in as fluent a situation as we are in now to throw ideas for reform into the debate. Hopefully, we can get back to where we were in the period after the Second World War of reform willingness and reform eagerness and, and a determination to do better. Professor Ringen, it has been a great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for sharing your ideas with us. We appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this episode of Ideas and Insight. Thanks for joining us today. In the coming weeks, we will discuss complicit, how we enable the unethical and how to stop by Professor Max Bezerman. Whether we are aware of it or not, almost all of us have been complicit in the unethical behavior of others. In Complicit, published by Princeton University Press this year, Harvard Business School professor Max Bezerman confronts her complicity head on 
and offers strategies for recognizing and avoiding the psychological and other traps that lead us to ignore, condone, or actively support wrongdoing in our businesses, organizations, communities, politics, and more. By challenging the notion that a few bad apples are responsible for society's ills, complicit implicates us all and offers a path to create a more ethical world. Watch out for an exciting discussion in the coming weeks. Until then, stay safe and goodbye.